Thought Leadership Studio. You're listening to Thought Leadership Studio, the podcast that helps you master high-level positive mass influence to create distinctive business niches, captivate an audience, grow your following, and change the game by changing the frame with strategic thought leadership. Thought Leadership Studio. Welcome to Thought Leadership Studio, episode number 20. I'm Chris McNeil, strategic thought leadership coach, consultant, marketer, and we're interviewing Jim Harris. And Jim Harris is one of North America's foremost disruptive innovation keynote speakers. He's a best-selling author, and he's a leading thinker on change and leadership. Now, Jim is also the principal at Strategic Advantage, where he works with organizations to address issues like leadership, change, customer relationship management, and creating learning organizations. So if you're a leader in business, if you're in sales, if you're in marketing, if you're in persuasion or leadership of any kind, I think you're going to find this interview incredibly helpful. Jim offers an incredible amount of insight on insight itself, how to perceive a trend ahead of it, how to help create a trend, and how to use your imagination to create impact in business and in thought leadership. And if you are listening to this on an app, make sure you also check out the podcast episode page at thoughtleadershipstudio.com. There's a direct link in the episode description or you can just go to thoughtleadershipstudio.com and click on podcast and you'll be brought to the episode page because I'm putting a lot of links to Jim's material and some references he mentions in the interview as well as the standard things I recommend you get like the free marketer's guide to strategic thought leadership to help you put together the building blocks of your own strategic thought leadership. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. Thought Leadership Studio. sitting here with Jim Harris, number one international best-selling author and columnist and a disruptive innovation thought leader and keynote speaker, author of Blindsided, and a guy who's been great at predicting future trends. Great to have you here, Jim. Yeah, great to be on the show, Chris. Fantastic. And I, I guess I want to um, start with just a, a bio. What can you tell our audience about what you've done and what you've learned in doing that? Sure. Well, I began my career as a journalist. Um, so I wrote a book, The 100 Best Companies to Work For in Canada, and it was a national bestseller. So that was more than 30 years ago. And that then prompted people to start asking me to speak at their conferences. So what do the best companies have in common on strategy, on employee engagement, on uh, pay benefits? Uh, so that began my career on the professional speaking circuit. 
And then I uh, connected with a guy called Dr. Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And for six years, I represented the Covey Leadership Center teaching The Seven Habits. And then uh, um, Stephen then brought out uh, principle-centered leadership and first things first. So I was deep into uh, Covey Leadership uh, theory and teaching. And then I brought out my uh, second book uh, called The Learning Paradox, and it looks at how 80% of the technology that we will use in our day-to-day lives in just 10 years hasn't been invented yet. So uh, my job security is based on learning, changing, and accepting uncertainty. And what we tend to fear most as adults is learning changing and uncertainty. So that book uh, is called The Learning Paradox, because paradoxically, our job security as individuals and organizational security is based on always changing, always learning, always improving. And that creates discomfort. We have to get out of our comfort zone. So that was the second book. And then the third book uh, called Blindsided, looks at how companies and entire industries are caught off guard. So today, Tesla is worth more than the 17 largest legacy auto companies combined. It's crazy. So you take them all together and Tesla is worth more. So if you don't think that electrification and autonomous vehicles are going to change the $10 trillion transportation industry, I mean, that statistic is for you. And so my work today uh, and for the last couple of decades has been working with companies and industries around what are the disruptive trends that will impact their business model? How can they identify them before they're disrupted? What systems and structures can they put in place inside their organization that are early warning systems? What systems internally help them continually Uh, evolve and change, not just their product, but their business model and how they work. In other words, you get to choose one of these two. Be disrupted or disrupt, which would you prefer? And if you're choosing to uh, disrupt others, you have to be continually evolving, improving. Um, So technology is part of this because technology enables disruption. But a bigger component and where the rubber really hits the road is engaging people. It's having a culture of continuous learning and continuous improvement. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and you're, you're fighting against the maybe the largest human drive in some ways, at least according to some, is the pull towards the familiar. Yes. So there is a pull towards the familiar on one sense, and yet... Um, you know, kids, like if you give them a video game and they master it too quickly, they throw the game away as a boring game. Sure. So on the one sense, we need stability, predictability, and a sense of comfort of knowing we know what's going on. But at the same time, if we've been doing that for 30 years, uh, we get bored. So we need to continually spice up our life by, in, in you know, introducing some level of disruption, interruption. So um, personally, I have a philosophy of what 25% 
of everything we do will be totally different this year from last year. And so this applies to me personally and to the company uh, on a company-wide basis. So am I engaged in new things? Uh, they might not be new in society in general, but they're new for me or they're new for mm -hmm. the company. So this is a um, driving principle for you then? Yes, this has become a principle. Uh, what new education am I continually engaged in? Whether that's very formal education, like going to a course, or informal, like you and I are spending time together today, so I'm going to be learning from you. So am I engaging with people with a, a, a mindset of always learning and then applying it? How do I apply what I've learned today uh, to the company, um, to my business model? So that's fascinating to me. I, I'm fascinated by learning in general. And the rate of change seems to be going so fast now if you're not immersed in learning in some direction. And of course, the types of people that we speak, the types of people I work with, and I, I do consulting and coaching and thought leadership, and the kinds of people that are attracted to this podcast, they're, they're wanting to drive change. And one of the things I had on my list to ask you is how much of driving change comes from insight as to what's coming up and how much comes from imagination and creating the impact from within of envisioning something different and bringing it about or is what kind of mix is there for you? you know, what do you see? So uh, my, my uh, view on change or creating new is, uh, to look at, uh, this is going to sound very strange, Chris, but to look at fear and frustration. So uh, if you look at uh, the way pearls are made, a grain of sand gets into the, uh, is it uh, clams that make pearls or oysters? I think it's oysters. Think so. so a grain of sand gets into the oyster and this grain of sand is irritating. Like it's a real pain in the butt for the oyster. It, so what the oyster actually does is coat it, the grain of sand, in a, this really soft, smooth uh, material, and that's how pearls are created. So in the same way, the way we create new value for our customers is finding out what really irritates them. Um, what is a classic fear or frustration? So I can give you an example. Um, you know, when I charge things to my credit card, I only see uh, what the charges are in a month's time when the statement comes. But if I'm on the road, I don't even see the statement. And so if there's a problem, I can't even see it and it'll go by and I get charged for something that I really didn't do. And I can't say, hey, this is fraudulent. But once you sign up to Google Pay and you put your credit cards into Google Pay, the notices are instant. Mm -hmm. Like I see, oh my God, this was just charged. And this isn't mine. I didn't charge this. And so it shortens the cycle time on learning. Um, and I can more accurately predict when they're a fraudulent charge, somebody's trying to or I can flag it and say to my business manager, hey, did, did you 
try and charge this? Or we end up subscribing to all sorts of services and we forget we subscribe and we're not using it anymore, but every month $25 is charged to your account and you go, oh my God, I'm not even using that anymore. Sure. Freaking cancel the thing. But if it's on a statement and I never see it um, or Heather sees it, uh, this is a problem. So uh, how do I shorten the cycle time? And uh, this is something that is an enhancement. So what is the classic fear or frustration? Hey, I go on paying something forever. And, you know, five years later, uh, I cancel the subscription. But in the meantime, I've paid $25 a month for five years. That's a huge waste of money. You know, and it's below the threshold. But if I can see it instantly, I go, hey, what the hell? Ah, just cancel that. So all of a sudden, uh, something that I never knew I needed, real-time instant uh, feedback on my expenses, is something that is of huge value. So if you want to really innovate around products, services, business models, look to your own fears and frustrations in your life. So where there's friction, there's opportunity. Oh, absolutely. If you're an entrepreneur, just look at your own life. Similarly, look at uh, where do you go? For instance, uh, I began using Zoom in 2019. And then the pandemic hits and everybody begins using Zoom. Well, when everybody begins using Zoom, if you'd bought the stock of Zoom at that point, you would have had a real Zoom in the equity uh, that you had in the company. So one of the things, if you just look to your life, uh, what are the things that people are excited about if you're taking it from an investment perspective? So um, a colleague of mine was a very early adopter and uh, we were working together and he was raving about his smartphone, which was uh, an Apple iPhone. This was the iPhone one. Well, wow. well, you know, how how often do people rave about their iPhone? Well, you look at it and this guy is just a raving maniac about the iPhone. Well, this might be a good indicator that this has something or if you ever talk to a Tesla owner, they just rave about their car. Now, I'm not talking about reading the press. I'm talking one-on-one, -on -one, talk to your friends who own the Tesla. And are they maniacs in talking? Like, will they talk to you for hours about their Tesla? I was reading about one policeman who uh, they bought a uh, Tesla for their police force. They bought just one. And then they found out they were saving $7,000 a year in fuel cost and maintenance. So they went, wow, seven grand a year. You know, after five years, it's a free car for us. Like the reduction in operating expense equals the capital expense of buying the thing. Sure. So then they went to two and now they have seven on their police force. And it's not a big police force. So soon every vehicle and this police chief stops some guy for speeding, okay, and all the guy wants to talk about is the Tesla <laughs> the cop has. He's, he's, not, he's not upset he's getting a ticket. Right. He's just like, 
tell me about your Tesla and your savings and what's this and what's that. So like, clearly, if people are early adopters and they're very excited about something, uh, what is it? Like people don't rave about their, you know, regular plain old gas car. What are they doing? They're complaining about gas prices. So, you know, what is the sentiment of people who are early adopters? Are they raving fans? And if that's the case, that's an that's not a guarantee, but it's an indicator of a shift that's coming. An organic brand ambassador movement. Exactly. And, and nobody like, your eyes to see when when this is early on, so there's an opportunity. Exactly. So I back in 2004, I bought a Prius. Uh, which is made by Toyota, which was a hybrid. So it was a gas electric. And what it did is it cut my cost of fuel by 50% from my prior car. And so the car cost me 30,000 to buy in 04. And I owned it for 17 years. And over the 17 years, it saved me $35,000 in gas. Wow. So, so some people at the time I bought it said, Jim, you know, oh, that's stupid. They cost more. And okay whatever it cost at the the time about four grand more for an equivalent car but it saved me 35,000 so the opex saving was greater than the capex so uh over the long run it was a very wise investment now if you were buying one today and you can't because you can't get cars very quickly because of supply chain problems sure but the payback would have been uh far far faster because the cost of gas has been so high so, you know, that's would have even been a faster payback if it had been today. And that same calculus exists on the electric vehicles, which the police, you know, uh, department we just talked about. So, uh, you know, I was a brand ambassador, an unpaid brand ambassador for Toyota for uh, 17 years. And, and now I am an anti-Toyota. Uh, brand ambassador because Toyota has been lobbying against EVs. I noticed that. So uh, I have only been saying nasty things about Toyota because they're offside on the EV revolution. And really the reason they're doing it is they're the number one in the world on hybrids. So, you know, they're, they're talking about hydrogen, which is stupid for the, yeah. There are certain niche applications, fine, but not for the general transportation market. So I've gone from a hugely positive brand ambassador, like I've, I've spoken about Toyota in thousands of interviews over the last 17 years, to being a huge critic of the company. So what you can, what you do, your corporate ethos or philosophy will have an impact on your adoption. So um, I, I uh, every chance I get within a reasonable context, saying negative things about Toyota. Isn't it amazing how much losing the plot can cost goodwill? And you brought up another point that's fascinating to me about what I would call a, a reframe of from purchase cost of a car to full ownership cost of a car, which is where electric cars stand out, of course, is the long-term ownership cost. And that's the kind of 
thinking reframe that maybe sometimes has to accompany an innovation. I know it can happen organically, or maybe it can be helped along through a strategic leadership of the marketplace and helping people reframe their thinking. Yeah, so this was interesting. Um, the normal car drives, uh, you know, 10,000 miles a year, something around that. Uh, but taxis or Uber vehicles or Lyft are really high use vehicles. And if you have a Lyft or Uber or taxi driver who's driving full time, whether that's five or seven days a week, um, they'll, they can do 100,000 miles a year. And if you're doing 100,000 miles a year, the payback on a hybrid isn't the 17 years that I had. It's two and a half years. So imagine you brought buy a brand new vehicle. You cut your gas usage in half, but because you're driving so much, you're paying less at the pump. Or if you move to an EV, yeah. you're paying 70% less by charging with electricity. Sure. You buy a big honking battery, so you have lots of range, and you're driving, you charge every single night at home, not at a supercharger. You pay far less at home than you do a supercharger. And all of a sudden, your payback on a brand new Tesla Model 3 or Model Y can be two, two and a half years, right? Like, imagine getting your car for free in fuel savings as a Tesla Model 3 or Model Y owner. Like, that's incredible. But nobody, uh, like, people look at the upfront cost, not the total life cycle cost or in a computer model, like you'd call it, uh, an IT department would call it total cost of ownership. Sure. So not only is your fuel cost significantly lower, your maintenance cost. Do you know that the average gas car has 2000 moving parts? Um, Chris is gonna be like a, a guessing game here. What do you think a Tesla has in moving parts? Uh, probably 30%. Well, 30% would be 600. Uh, it has 20 moving parts. Wow. So think about number one, how many things can break down if you have 2000 moving parts? And how many things can break down if you have 20 moving parts? Sure, sure. And uh, okay, one is breakdown. So around maintenance, a lot less maintenance on a, an EV than on a gas car. And gas cars are called ICE, internal combustion engine. Okay, sure. so a lot less on an EV than an ICE. Um, but uh, also think about uh, the supply chain problems. Mm -hmm. If you are, uh, you know, selling a $60,000, $70,000 SUV and you're missing a one square inch semiconductor chip that makes the windshield wipers work, can you sell your $70,000 SUV without windshield wipers? Right. So a $1 chip can block or stop the sale of a $70,000 SUV. Well, this is problematic for the old legacy auto industry, but because Tesla makes its own parts, it's what's called vertically integrated. They don't have as many supply chain problems. There are, don't get me wrong, everyone has supply chain problems. But if you're making your own parts sure. you, and you only have 20 moving parts as opposed to 2,000, you have far fewer supply chain barriers to getting the product out the door. Right. So yeah. 
one of the profound insights about the different business model for Tesla is by being vertically integrating, by simplifying product design radically over traditional old legacy automakers, they have weathered the pandemic far, far better. I wrote a piece about Tesla a couple months ago because there's such a strong example of marketing a company entirely through innovation and thought leadership. And I, I really see thought leadership really is just the intersection of innovation and marketing. I mean, they have a $0 ad budget, but they do things so differently, just organically generates exposure and press. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Tesla has no PR department. So if you're a journalist, which I am, you, you can't ever reach <laughs> <anyone> <laughs> <at> Tesla to, <laughs> to do stuff. So that's frustrating. So you have to have people you know, friends on the inside sure. to help you out. Sure. Like friends of yours who work at Tesla is a very good thing to have because there's no PR department. But um, all of a sudden that mentality uh, says, let's focus on end customer satisfaction. So how do we take these customers and turn them into raving fans and brand ambassadors? And which is kind of what we were talking about at the start of the podcast here. Mm -hmm. um, raving about Tesla creates organic PR. So rather than say, oh, how do I incent people? Why don't you just focus on creating the best user experience. We call this UX in the computer, UX user experience or CX customer experience. How do you create the best UX or CX for your customers so they become raving brand ambassadors? Yeah, and that's, a, that's an awesome point. And one question I had for you, I don't think I've gotten us to yet but is how how do you sense when it's the right direction the right hunch and say if elon musk before tesla there wasn't any electric cars that a lot of people felt were worth owning i mean there were electric cars but none of them that could stand up with mercedes or bmws or you know hondas at that time until until he brought out the Model S and that completely changed the paradigm. Obviously, the bet has worked out. And I remember how many years Amazon lost money, but they attracted enough VC money to keep it going. But how do you how do you sense when this is a bet? This is a risk, but it's the right risk. So one of the things uh, that you need to look at is the underlying cost curves or cost structures. So. The one we know best is Moore's law, that the processor power will double every 18 months while staying at the same price point. And uh, it was Gordon Moore, who was the co-founder of Intel, who posited this law in 1965. And what it means is practically that uh, back in the early 70s, an Intel chip had 2000 transistors on it. And today's chips from many different companies have 50 billion, I feel like Dr. Evil, 50 billion <laughs> chips, billion. Yeah. So, so this is a, a shift that has profound consequences. So 
one measure of compute speed used to be a gigaflop. And a gigaflop is doing a billion transactions, a billion calculations in a single second. Mm -hmm. So in 1961, a gigaflop was $164 billion on mainframes. And today a gigaflop is a single cent. And that's like so 2022 a, a, a figure because sure. it's going down from there. And what that means is compute power is free and it's at the edge, meaning it's on my smartphone. It's not in a data center. We still have data centers, but so much compute power is done at what's called the edge, right? So this changes business models. And it means that if your company isn't mobile first, meaning putting mobile at the center of your marketing strategy, you're not reaching the supercomputer in the hip pocket or purse of all your customers and your suppliers. So you are missing the boat because my smartphone, which is worth about $1,000, has more raw computing power than IBM's Deep Blue that beat Gary Kasparov in chess in 1997. Sure. And that was a $100 million project. So if I choose not to be mobile first, if my website, for instance, isn't designed to be mobile first, I'm not reaching my customers effectively. So, um, but the reason that's happened is because the declining cost of computing. So from the point of view of Tesla, the dominant uh, metric is the price of lithium ion batteries. So uh, if you go back to 2010, the cost per kilowatt hour of lithium ion was about $1,200. That's in per kilowatt hour of battery. And that's in uh, 2020 constant dollars. So adjusted for inflation back now to 2021, uh, the price is $120. So from 1200, to 120, that's a 90% reduction. Now, if you study cost curves and you're Elon Musk and you see this continually declining cost curve, just like, the, like Moore's law, you can say, hey, why don't I start building an EV company? Because the batteries are gonna get cheaper every single year which means the cost of an EV is gonna get cheaper every single year. So I'm gonna start by building a very high-end uh, Roadster because the batteries are very expensive in 2010 at uh, you know, uh, $1,100, $1,200 per kilowatt hour. So we need to have a quarter million dollar car in order to justify because 80% of that car cost is going to be these really expensive lithium ion batteries, but they're going to get cheaper every single year. And then we'll build, you know, not a quarter million dollar car, we'll build a $120,000 Model S, and then we'll build a $160,000 big honking SUV, the Model X. Sure. And then we'll build a really inexpensive small Model S, we'll call that the Model 3. And then we'll build a crossover that's a mini X, but doesn't have gall wings and call that the Y. And that'll be, and now the Y's, the Y in 2022 will be the best selling 
car in the world by dollar volume, not by unit volume, sure. but by dollar volume. Right. Because really, EVs are still more expensive. But that, that declining cost curve on the battery cost is, uh, you know, Elon during battery day in 2020 said that the plans that Tesla have will drive the cost of batteries by another down by another 50%. Uh, so at that point in time, we end up having EVs cheaper than gas cars to buy, not just total life cycle cost, sure. but on CapEx and on OpEx, they're already cheaper on OpEx. And at that point, we end up having the uh, legacy automakers fall off a cliff. Well, now, people people think things are either or, right? They're either black or white. They're either on or off. You know, Jim, you're telling me that everything's going to be EVs. No, 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 no. Uh, you know, even if we had 100% EV sales this year, we'd still have, uh, uh, you know, millions of legacy gas cars right sure. like norway norway this year will hit a hundred percent new ev sales i by december i think no like uh 91 of all new car sales in norway in january were plug-ins so i think this year by december we'll hit a hundred percent now some of those are plug-in hybrids so they still have a gas component but uh, about 70% of all those plugins are pure EVs. So it will be the first market in the world um, to move to 100% EVs. The biggest market, of course, is China. 26% uh, of all new car sales in China, and it's a humongous market for EVs. And the number one selling EV car in China is the car you've never heard of. It's number two globally for EVs. It's called the Wuling Mini EV. And it costs $5,000, okay? Five, wow. Now, it's this tiny little car. It looks like a Mercedes-Benz smart car, sure. but it's a four-seater. It only costs 5,000 US. It only goes uh, 60 miles per hour. But if you are in cities like, Shenzhen or Beijing or Shanghai, like you, you can't even go 60 miles an hour, right? Sure. Unless you're driving at three in the morning. So uh, who cares? It only has like a couple hundred mile range, but you're getting for young people, they are loving this car, four seater. And they just last week announced its little brother. It's a two-seater cabrio, so like a rag top sure. where you can put the top down. Only two-seater, and it costs eight grand. So it's a really cute car. Look it up, the Wuling uh, Mini EV Cabrio. Uh, I predict this will be a huge seller. So the number one EV in the world, in the largest market in the world, China, is a $5,000 EV. So if you don't think EVs can be cheaper than gas cars, right. the number one selling car in all of China, the number two globally, there it is. Well, speak about enthusiasm on new trends coming in. I ran across a YouTube channel recently that 
was all about this guy who bought cheap Chinese mini electric pickup trucks to drive around on his farm because you couldn't legally drive them on the regular roads. But he right. put out a different model every couple months on his farm and and do YouTube videos about it. And you could see in their replies, it's like, that is just way beyond cool. How do I get one of these things? Yeah. Well, you know, for a city car, do you know that 60% of all trips in the US are five miles or less? Okay, yes. 60 per six zero percent. Sure. Well, wouldn't a Wu-Link Mini EV, as long as it got certified by, you know, the Department of Transportation, wouldn't that be a great thing to run around the city with? Well, and, like, and these golf carts that are buzzing around my neighborhood all the time, you know. Yeah. Somebody the other day said uh, I was working with a group of CEOs and he said, Five grand US, that's less than my golf cart. Exactly. Oh, right. <laughs> this is your <laughs> golf cart. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? The legacy automakers are going to say, hey, this is unsafe and it's like cheaply made. And, you right. know, they're going to create all sorts of reasons to create trade barriers for this thing to be sold in the US. Right. Well, but like the company, can't even keep up with demand in China. So there's little fear that they're going to be exporting right now. They're like working like heck, like their demand is going to go through the roof on the Cabrio that they just announced 10 days ago. So boom. Well, speaking of an opportunity though, and you know, um, what do you see coming up that most people don't see? I think most insightful people in business now are seeing the electric car trend. They're seeing this going to be a lot of disruption to for car maintenance shops over time. That's going to take a while, but it's going to happen. If they don't reinvent themselves, they're going to be in trouble at some point. But what else do you see that we should know about that maybe most people don't see yet? Well, there are going to be many disruptions. I gave a talk in 2017. It's up on YouTube. Um, so if you search Jim Harris and uh, on YouTube and disruption and Tesla, I'll link to it. I'll link to it. In the it's it's page. it's like it's like a TED talk. It's at something called Idea City. Okay. Yeah, link to it. But if you look really profoundly and you think implicatively, there are going to be many things that are disrupted. So let's take for instance. 94% of car accidents are due to driver error. So when we have EVs, once you have EVs, you can have autonomous vehicles. So you can have autonomous safety vehicles. Uh, so safety increases. And in fact, this is already the case. Uh, the US government measures number of accidents per million miles traveled. Mm -hmm. And Tesla has 85% fewer accidents per million miles because of all the autonomous features on them. Sure. And we don't even really have, you know, a, a level five uh, autonomous full self-driving vehicle. So uh, this is huge because think about the 40,000 people who won't be killed every year on, you know, uh, American roadways. Isn't this great? And think about the 2.5 million people who won't be permanently maimed, right? This is great. But if you sell auto insurance, like 
what's going to happen when we have no more car accidents or we have 94% fewer car accidents? What happens to the auto insurance market? Well, do you know that Tesla, because they have 85% fewer accidents, has gone out to its Tesla owners in starting in California and said, hey, you can get insurance from Tesla for 20 to 30% less than a traditional insurance company. Now they can do that because they know the accidents are 85% fewer per million miles. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, now does that mean that Tesla is gonna disrupt the insurance industry? And what about parking? Do you know that we only use our cars 4% of the time? Like that is a horrific asset utilization rate. So imagine I buy a Tesla with full self-driving level five. We don't have that yet, but imagine we do. Mm -hmm. And rather than pay $45 today to park in the downtown financial core, I say to my car, hey, go forth and earn your keep. And I put it into Uber and Lyfts or Lyfts autonomous pool to go around, drive around all day and make me money rather than pay $45 a day to park in the downtown core. And then at 4.30 before I want to go home, I call my car and say, don't take any more rides, come pick me up. Um, so my car is making me money rather than costing me money. Now, what happens to parking lots, Right. McKinsey says we have 60 billion square feet too much of parking given the rise of autonomous fleets. Right. So what happens to parking lots? What happens to the revenue stream for parking lots? How do I short parking lots in my stock portfolio? So, you know, I'm not an investment advisor and I'm, I don't really know how to short parking lots, but these are just the kind of implicative questions. If we have 85% fewer accidents, do we have too many ambulances? Well, you seem to be following the domino stack. There's, exactly. You know, and you're following this is, down the line. There's so Chris, many this, this is brilliant. What is the domino stack for EVs? Right. That's going to change. And well, that brings me to what would be your advice for those about to be disrupted, for those stuck in the comfort zone for those who fall prey to the natural pull to the familiar, how to wake themselves up to being an agent of change, or to at least preemptively reframe their whole business to take advantage of change instead of being disrupted by it. Well, and you also talked about earlier about writing a book. So yeah. I'm going to answer both questions with one answer. So if you want to write a book, uh, Blindsided, which is behind me right uh, here, mm -hmm. is about 100,000 words. And, uh, you know, the learning paradox right here is about 100,000 words. If you're going to write 100,000 words, that's a daunting task to begin with. So don't write 100,000 words. Write a 10,000-word article. If 10,000 is too daunting, write a 1,000-word article. Start somewhere. Uh, you know, write... 10 1000 word articles on different topics and there you have the kernels of what are 10 chapters now turn each of those 1000 word articles into a 10000 word article if you have 10 1000 word articles you've just written a book okay you sew them all together you update them blah 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 
So in the same way with how do we create change in our organization, you're not going to become a disruptive company, you know, on day one. That's like saying, me saying, I've never exercised, but today I'm going to go run a marathon. Uh, that, that is problematic, okay? Why don't we start by walking around the block? So just four edges of the block. Now, why don't I walk around two blocks? So I've done six sides. How about eight blocks? How about I run one block or I walk one block, I run one block, I walk one block. Let's build it up. Now I'm running, you know, one block, walking one block, running one block, walking one block, you know, I'm building it up. So in the same way with innovation, Let's start by baby steps on innovation. Let's just improve our customer service. Let's get our people used to improving our product. Let's get, uh, let's test and play and tinker and toy on the edge of our business with our business model. You know, we're, we're taking little steps and we go, hey, this is kind of fun. And we develop the chops for innovation. And then, hey, let's, have more aggressive goals. Let's improve more. Hey, let's dedicate revenue to training every single person in the organization about what is innovation? Why is innovation so important? How do we innovate? What are different tools around innovation? When I represented Covey, uh, we talked about him at the top of the podcast. Um, you know, Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Yes. very strongly believed you had to train every single person in the seven habits to create a cultural change in the company. And it is the same around innovation. We have to train every single person in the company about why innovation is so important, how to innovate, what are the tools you have at your disposal to innovate. And then we have to provide the resources for people to innovate. Um, a, a, a guy called Gary Hamel, whose work I just love, he, he, one of his books is Competing for the Future. Um, he says, like, imagine you said golf. I want everybody in my organization to be great at golf. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but we're not going to give them any golf clubs. We're not going to give them any lessons with golf pros. And we're not going to give them any time to spend time on the golf course to practice and get better. We're just going to say everybody <laughs> get better at golf. Point like, taken. That would be idiotic. And yet that's what we're doing with innovation. You know, every single corporate leader says innovation is essential. Okay. Have you trained every person in innovation? Have you given them the tools, the golf clubs? Are you giving them the golf pro? And are you giving them time to innovate? No, our innovation is a brown bag lunch uh, session that is not obligatory to attend. And you have to take time off from your lunch to go do it. Like that is insane. We are not giving people the tools the resources, the time, and then holding managers accountable. You think that's part of just the corporate culture that we were all indoctrinated in over the last so long, where so much emphasis given to linear thinking versus making space to being creative? Absolutely. We need 
And it's not just the space. You don't just leave innovation to happenstance. Like imagine we said that about sales. Okay, we don't have any salespeople. We don't do any sales training. We don't have any CRM to support sales like Salesforce. Um, you know, we don't have any compensation tied to performance. Uh, we just hope that sales organically, magically happen. Sure. Well, this, like that would be insane. The space plus the resources to fill. Plus the resources. That would be insane. And yet that's what we're doing with innovation. Yeah. And I, I sometimes I wonder if this, the linear logical thinking where it's like saying, I want you to plan to be spontaneous. <laughs> Paradoxical. Yeah. Yeah. And, and create the creative ideas seemingly, quote, come from the blue. They come when somebody's not immersed in task so much. So that's what I meant by making space is inviting it in, doing the training to create uh, the right environment where it's going to come in, leaving space for it to come in, but absolutely putting all the things in place to support the innovation and the application yeah. of it. So we ha have to support, we have to encourage, we have to message around the ac that expectation. We have to give managers uh, training in how to uh, aid, support, nurture their people. Yeah. And we have to hold them accountable. So 3M, you know, the people who make scotch tape and post-it notes, um, they uh, have a metric where bonuses aren't paid unless 30% of this year's revenue comes from products and services that were not available five years ago. Oh, that's smart. So, so that really creates an orientation, like a systemic approach to say, hey, no corporate bonuses this year yeah. unless we hit this metric. So this is a system and structure approach to creating incentive around innovation. And I would not argue you should do that out of the get-go. That's like saying, let's run a marathon on day one of never having exercised. So sure. um, this is like a 701 type of approach. We need to start slowly and continually improve. So, uh, but the ROI on innovation is incredible. Um, well, uh, Drucker that said profits only come from two things, innovation and marketing and everything else is a cost or something like that. It's it's a very good approach. If you see this book behind me here, Exponential Organizations, um, EXO, Exponential Organizations, uh, I'm involved with it. Uh, we see 10X uh, outperformance of the best companies relative to the industry average. Oh, wow. So imagine 10x better sales, 10x lower cost structure, 10x higher customer satisfaction, 10x faster growth. Um, and if you actually say, okay, well, what distinguishes these exceptional performing organizations? There is uh, a number of underlying principles, tools, and tactics that enable them to far outperform the industry benchmarks. So, um, and just uh, in December or spring of next year, um, the second version of the book is coming out. So awesome. this is around disruption. So 
some parting thoughts for our audience. What would you encourage them to do immediately to make a difference in the things that we've been discussing? So the first thing is educate yourself. So, uh, you know, uh, we mentioned at the start on YouTube, uh, there are some videos uh, that I have. They're like TED Talks. They're at something called Idea City. Same thing, 17 minute talk or 10 minute talk, very short, but there are three of those you should watch, one on the disruption of Tesla. Um, and these by disruption standards are old, like 2017 is the Tesla one. Um, but I had a, a woman come up to me and say, thank you so much. I invested in Tesla after you talked that uh, I got to really thank you. I've done very well. Another is on the disruption of retail by uh, e-commerce. And this is a pre-pandemic uh, talk on e-commerce. We saw e-commerce experience 10 years of growth in the first 90 days of the pandemic. So this was a precursor. So you can go back and look at it and go, people were going, oh, I don't believe, you know, it's not going to change. Well, if you actually look at it, wow, it has changed forever. And uh, this year, uh, or in the next couple of years, UBS, the analyst firm, says 100,000 U.S. retail locations are going to permanently close because of the shift to e-commerce because of the pandemic. So, But you could have looked at this video in 2018 and said, oh, here's a futurist talking about this shift. Maybe we should really enhance our e-commerce initiative. Now, early on with Amazon, many critics said, oh, Amazon isn't making money, so we can ignore it. <laughs> right. Just like many critics said, Tesla isn't making money, we can ignore it. So this is a dangerous mindset to have. If something is growing exponentially every single year, the fact that it's not profitable in the early years is not a reason to dismiss the trend. Is it growing exponentially? That's the more important question. So um, there's videos, watch, watch those videos. There's a ton of articles uh, like this article here on uh, death to driving. Mm -hmm. um, there's literally dozens of articles on the website, jimharris.com that you can read about different industries and the disruption. And then if you have conferences, like if you're part of an association, what I really do is speak at conferences and seminars all around the world, whether in person or virtually, you can reach out to me, jim at jimharris.com and say, hey, can we get you to come in and speak to our board of directors, our leadership team, our association that has 3000 people that are, uh, meet once a year, whether that's in person or virtually. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Jim Harris. Um, about a, more than a quarter million people will follow me there. Yeah. And then if you want to connect on LinkedIn, uh, say, hey, I saw you on Chris's Thought Leadership uh, podcast, or I heard you at least, and then I saw the YouTube video after Chris posted it. I really want to connect because I want to continually learn about disruptive innovation. So connect with me on LinkedIn. And I do have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that. So 
anytime anything new is posted, you'll see that. So there's five different ways, six different ways that you can keep up with this. That's awesome. And you got a track record. You've been right about a lot of things. Yes. Uh, like I'm not always right. Uh, in 1998, I, uh, I predicted VoIP would mean that all long distance would be free by 2005 for mass market. And I was off by two years because Skype launched in 03. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not always right. Uh, it's kind of like 80% right from 98 to 03, but uh, I was off by two years. So, no, you, you, you can still be wrong. But the important thing is to think about these uh, trends and, and think about how they're going to affect you potentially and engender the commitment to continuous innovation and the flexibility in your thinking and the organizational uh, business models. Absolutely. I love that. This has been great, Jim. Chris, this has been so fun. Uh, do let me know when it goes up because I'll post it on LinkedIn and uh, we're connected on LinkedIn and yeah. on Twitter. And so I'll, I'll uh, put it out. And there are so many friends I have, uh, thought leaders all around the world, they'll tweet it out and so on. So uh, thank you so much for the invitation to be on your podcast. And thanks for your time. This has been great. So much fun, Chris. Have a great rest of your day, Jim. You too. Thank you. Thought Leadership Studio. Well, that was a very interesting interview with Jim Harris, disruptive innovation speaker, best-selling author, and futurist with a darn strong track record. So that was all about gaining insight into predicting upcoming trends, learning to incorporate preemptive disruption and be the disruptor instead of being disrupted to make disruptive innovation a guiding principle, better see opportunities in advance, and assess whether a possible future is a good bet. Now, if you're listening to this, on an app, you want to go to thoughtleadershipstudio.com and click on podcast, or just use the link in the episode description to go to the episode page, because I've got links to a lot of the resources that we discussed. Also link to the marketer's guide to strategic thought leadership, which is a way to ensure that you have all the building blocks in place for your own thought leadership. I also currently for limited time offering a free 30-minute thought leadership discovery meeting. And the link to that is also on the episode page at thoughtleadershipstudio.com. I'm Chris McNeil. This is Thought Leadership Studio. Thanks again for listening. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thought Leadership Studio.